Wouldn't it be kind of fun to actually just have a class where you build an arcade together with everyone, right? Because you're now, and, and you could do it in that language. I mean, with woodworking and electronics and coding and audiovisual and all these different skills that you need that can be applied to so many different professions. And you can get them that extra language practice in that space that might be related to one of their professions. I would find very valuable, especially once they learn that vocabulary set. You're listening to Speaking of Language, a podcast recorded at the Language Resource Center at Cornell University. Each week, we explore a topic related to language pedagogy and second language acquisition. This week on Speaking of Language. Don Vosberg joins us from Carleton College in Minnesota to discuss all things gamification and language learning through gaming. Welcome to a new episode of Speaking of Language. I'm Angelica Kramer, the director of the Language Resource Center at Cornell University. And I'm Sam Lupowitz, the LRC's media manager. We have Don Vosberg in the studio with us today. Dr. Vosberg is an academic technologist of learning innovation at Carleton College in Minnesota, where he previously served as the Language Center director. Today, we will talk about gaming as a learning tool. Welcome to Speaking of Language, Don. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So, Don, to get us started here, can you please briefly introduce yourself and tell us a little bit more about your own background and path with languages? Sure. Uh, it's, a, it's a long path. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I, I didn't really start learning a second language and get interested into that, into that until I was about 25. I started university later in life, I suppose, compared to uh, at least some people. And um, I didn't speak any other languages, and I was actually a biochemist. That's what I was going to go into when I started. Huh. Uh, but I also wanted to live abroad. I have no idea why I wanted to do that. Mm. I didn't speak <laughs> any other languages. Uh, and so I felt nervous going anywhere other than an English-speaking country. So mm. I ended up in Ireland. Um, mm. And as part of uh, my classes there, I took Irish for fun. Oh, wow. And uh, that just sort of kicked everything off. And huh. um Ever since then, I uh, started getting more interested in the languages and cultures. I dropped the biochem uh, <laughs> major and uh, ended up uh, getting a German degree. My Session. There you go. Um, uh, with the linguistics minor. Um, mm. And then that just kind of snowballed from there. Nice. I like it. So one of your areas of interest that we're excited to talk about today is the use of video games as a language learning tool. Please tell us more about the gaming SLA genre and the benefits and hindrances of gaming for language learners. Sure. Well, the, my own personal background in this um, really starts on my own sort of anxiety levels with trying to speak another language mm -hmm. uh, in front of other people. Um, and while taking classes sort of set the foundation, some of the basic conversational skills that I needed, I wasn't really advancing too much until I started finding my own communities of practices, right? So um, in this case, for me, it ended up being volleyball. I played a lot of volleyball, and I did that when I was in Austria for a bit. Um, and then also video gaming, um, which is where I originally got sort of this idea to work on this project when I was in Ireland. Hmm. Um, and it was sort of through doing these focus on... Not necessarily the games, but uh, I guess it's focusing on the games. You're focusing on a goal. It's goal-directed activity. Um, I was able to kind of overcome my anxiety and just talk, 
right? A lot of the people on the volleyball team or who were playing video games didn't care if I was grammatically correct or not, or if mm -hmm. I made too many errors, as long as we could play the game together, um, everything worked out well. And so that helped to reduce a lot of my anxiety. And then I was able to keep kind of moving forward. So that's sort of the background of that and where my yeah. interest is. Um, from there, of course, in terms of the general use of video games and language learning, there's sort of a couple different categories, and we can always talk more about this later, but uh, there's digital game-based learning, which is sort of a big umbrella term that covers a lot of uh, different types, but the, these are usually serious games or edutainment or edu games, so games that are often created specifically for a learning purpose. Um, and then there is a sort of another category of commercial off-the-shelf games, which are made mostly for entertainment and fun to begin with. And then some people try to, in my case, sort of uh, back-channel learning through mm -hmm. that, right? Sort yes. of sneak it in there. Um, and um, so I was really just focused on things that were fun, motivational, like my own experience with playing volleyball or, or video games in this, this context. So a little bit more about the background that kind of leads into some of the benefits before we jump in there. Um, they, they work well because of this idea of fun and play and engagement, right? You stay engaged with things that are fun and uh, they help keep you sort of long-term engaged, right? Most of the time with these commercial off-the-shelf games, um, people don't play them for an hour or two and put them away unless they really hate the game. A lot of times they'll keep coming back and play for hours and hours, weeks and weeks, months mm -hmm. and months, and sometimes years upon years. And so they're really good at um, doing these things that support fun and motivation. So we know that they're good uh, with this um, in terms of providing lots of interaction, which is motivational. There's lots of ego gratification and reward giving in these things, in these games which is motivational. They're task-oriented. I mentioned that before, goal-directed, task-oriented. They're also low-risk environments. Mm -hmm. uh, so people are more apt to take risks with their language, for example. They're also visually stimulating. A lot of times the stories can be a, a lot of fun and there's lots of collaboration with other people. Um, and so we know from previous research and second language acquisition, when they look at this, they're primarily looking at the background of why games could be good learning spaces and that's where you get things with engagement and socialization and collaboration. We know those are areas that are ripe for practicing language. So it's about yeah. getting people to practice. And we do have some research that shows things like uh, there's vocabulary reten uh, retention. Um, you have more, uh, there's more possibilities of episodes of negotiation of meaning, for example. Mm -hmm. um, language related episodes can happen more frequently. And there's some general improvement that you'll find in scores for reading, writing, listening, anxiety reduction, which I mentioned before. Um, you can find a lot of those things with game-related studies. Uh, there, of course, are some not-so-good things uh, that I would label in there. And it's mostly about things that might uh, hinder your ability to even want to stay playing in the games uh, themselves. And I'm thinking along the lines of they're not for everyone, right? Not everyone sure. has an interest in games. On the flip side of that, some people get addicted to them. There mm -hmm. is that particular aspect of it and what comes with it. Of course, it's not always an equitable solution. Not everyone mm -hmm. has internet access. Not everyone has money to pay for a computer system that might play some of these games, although that barrier is getting lower. But some are also behind monthly subscriptions. Yeah. Um, there's also social issues and things around hate and harassment that follow mm. people into the games, right? Especially these large social collaborative games, which is mostly my background. 
Um, I know in 2021, they might have updated this, but the uh, Anti-Defamation League had a survey around this. Uh, they estimate about 97 million adults play online games uh, around that time. And while about 99% or so experience positive social engagement with people, they did say about five out of six people experienced harassment. Wow. The adult group. Um, and for younger people, roughly 13 to 17, about three-fifths of them experienced some sort of harassment. Huh. Um 8% of adults reported that they were uh, exposed to discussion around, around white supremacist ideology, for example. 10% of young people experience the same thing. And, of course, harassment based on identity varies mm -hmm. as well, too. So by uh, in terms of their report, 49% of all women gamers experienced harassment online, huh. followed by 42% of Black or African American, 38% uh, Asian American, and 38% from the LGBTQ plus or IA community as well. So oh. a lot of these um, issues that we're dealing, of course, out outside of the online gaming world uh, are brought into those spaces. And mm -hmm. in some cases, they're exacerbated because people might feel more comfortable sitting behind a computer, not face to face with mm -hmm. others. Right? Mm -hmm. And of course, um, if I'm looking at something like engagement and long-term engagement to sneak in language, people have to stay engaged and play. And of course, mm -hmm. if it's not a healthy environment to be in, yeah. You're not sure. going to want to be there. No sure. one is. Yeah. Huh. So, Don, you've researched how massively multiplayer online game environments, specifically World of Warcraft, can be beneficial for language learners. Tell us more about your research and what you found. Right. So, my original, I, I've run similar research projects over time, but my the base research that I did took place over eight weeks. Um, mm -hmm. Um, with eight language learners. They were uh, third semester learners of German, and I had uh, two native speakers that were playing with them that were part of the group. So they operated together as a unit, um, and they went in and they played in World of Warcraft. At that time, World of Warcraft, which is still running around. Um, they still report a couple million players, I think, or at least that have accounts, a few hundred thousand are actively playing. Um, and... Um, we had them play twice a week for about an hour and a half each time, and they actually <laughs> often played more frequently than that. So mm -hmm. this was something that was offered through their course. They could do that or other speaking activities. Mm -hmm. I think we had almost 50 students between the two courses. I believe there was 48 and 44, I think it was, out of the 50, almost 50 wanted to play instead of doing the other activities. So again, mm -hmm. tapping into this uh, idea mm -hmm. of and, and wanting to do this. Um, so they played, we recorded all the sessions, um, we then transcribed all the sessions. Oh boy. Um, yeah, it was a lot of fun <laughs> excitement for many, many weeks. Uh -huh. uh, we did some part of speech tagging to look at a few things and, and everything else that might go with it. Um, and um, what we ended up finding over this course of time, well, primarily one was they had very little game or language learning fatigue, so they were okay with huh continuously playing that was mm -hmm. that was fine not only on a week-to-week -week basis but at the end of eight weeks they were willing to come back again on a ninth week and kind of do mm -hmm. like a post session um and so there's again that kind of fun play aspect keeping people engaged more long term with it um we did find that the amount 
of words that they spoke per week as well as their accuracy fluctuated on a week-to-week basis as you might expect so it's not this nice steady growth they don't continuously mm-hmm. get better or speak more it's it's up and down due to a variety of factors which we can talk about in in a minute um, but generally speaking, they did speak more over time. They had more terms, longer run counts, or they were doing mm-hmm. longer sentences. They relied less on English over time. So even the students who didn't speak a lot in general, and their levels stayed relatively the same. Um, when they did speak, they tended to use German more instead of English. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there was more reliance, I guess, on German. Um, we found a few other neat little things that, you know, they were better on their subject verb agreement, right? They were better on, uh, the finite verb placement and sentences mm-hmm. over time. It wasn't drastic gains or anything like that, but they did show some steady improvement there. They retained some important vocabulary that they learned in the first three or so weeks. Um, and they all felt in terms of their own personal questionnaires that they fill out, they all felt that they just felt better speaking German. They felt like they were more confident doing uh, that and, and and speaking with the native speakers helped quite a bit. That was one of their favorite findings or favorite mm-hmm. elements of this whole thing was actually working with the native speaker. We were worried that they might be nervous at first, um, but they, they jumped right in and focusing on the game again, helped them take away a lot of that anxiety and they just played the game with that native speaker and spoke a lot. And so they felt that that um, really helped them overall, regardless of whether any test scores or improvement uh, actually sure. happened in the data, they all felt a lot better about their German speaking ability and listening abilities as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, boosting motivation, right? And interest. Yeah. That's wonderful. Yeah. Do you see a space for gaming in the language classroom rather than as an extension of the classroom? Yeah, that's a uh, that's a good question. So, um, you know, I, I do see gaming and gamification if people are trying to just bring general gamification to the classroom uh, work in different ways. Um, and students often when they get when they're exposed to that, they usually re- report, you know, a preference for learning that way. It's better than doing worksheets mm-hmm. or fill and drill or different types of exercises. Yeah. Um, and we have some evidence at a point that it, that works out. But what I what I don't often hear is again this long term engagement, um, and not speaking for everyone, of course, but from the students that I've talked to, uh, usually again when things are built for learning, they often do it. They find it more fun than the typical exercises, but they never go back to it. So it's either a one and done, or they do it a couple of times for class. But there's not that. I'm going to go home now and do it again, and I'm going to do it over hours or mm-hmm. weeks, right? Um, and that's that little part that I'm trying to tap into um, to get that additional practice that we just often don't get in the language classroom, right? Um, we do get some speaking opportunities, but not that multiple hours over many, many mm-hmm. weeks, over many years. And so I'm trying to find ways to, to access that. Well, and I think if it simply extends the time that students engage with the target language, that in and of itself is a win, right? I mean, that's the goal, right? Yeah. And again, that was that was primarily how I got a lot of my language practice and how I learned to really speak and listen when using mm-hmm. the language. Mm-hmm. Um, again, the, the the foundational stuff I got from the classroom was very important. Um, but I never felt comfortable just walking out and speaking or, or doing anything like yeah. that, especially... Uh, with my anxieties that I had mentioned before, right? Mm-hmm. So um, this kept me engaged. It kept me moving along and working on it. 
Um, and I'm not sure if I would have done that had I not found my volleyball group, for example, or mm-hmm. had I not found the gaming group and continued that on. Um, that was my way of exploring the language. I was never a literature person in terms of getting really in-depth the texts and reading yeah. about those things. Um, I, I needed something else. I needed some other gateway to keep going. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. So if our listeners are interested in exploring gaming as a tool, where would you suggest they start? Well, I sort of break this down into two categories. Um, There's some really good stuff out there as just to why games are good as a learning tool in general. And I think that's always a good place to start at. So in particular, I'm thinking about um, Mark Prinsky as an author that's good to look up. Mm-hmm. Kurt Squire, James G, which most people would probably know in this in this grouping. And they'll talk a lot about the principles and foundations of games and why they make good learning environments in general. Um, and if we're looking specifically more at second language acquisition, um, a name that comes right to mind, at least for me, is a person by the name of Mark Peterson. He wrote a good uh, book called Computer Games and Language Learning, real straightforward, (laughs) Uh um, uh, from 2013. Um, But it has a nice survey of all the previous research um, and where you can kind of start and then go to the references after you've read that and find out some more research. He has some more updated stuff, too. There's um, Digital Simulation Games and Call is one that came out. It's an article that came out not that long ago. And Digital Games and Language Learning came out in 2021. It's also a textbook. Mm -hmm. Great. So speaking of why games are good learning environments, you recently built an arcade completely from scratch. That in and of itself is quite amazing and impressive. Um, You also mentioned back-channel learning earlier. So are you integrating opportunities for language learning while gaming on your arcade? Do you game on an arcade? I do. At an arcade? With an arcade? Prepositions are so hard. (laughs) Um, Well, I I do do gaming at an arcade. Um, But, uh, (laughs) you know, I haven't really thought about the arcade in and of itself as a specific uh, tool for this, although it certainly could be. I mean, I watch my kids. So I I have a six and a four-year-old, and they play Mario. My six-year-old plays original Mario Brothers pretty well. My Six and four year old can also play Bubble Bobble pretty well. Love um, it. And it's interesting watching them because as soon as they sit there, this idea of engagement, collaboration, mm-hmm. you know, and, and and being social with each other. I mean, it's immediate helping each other out, giving directions, talking about things. Of course, they yell at each other, too, when someone <laughs> uh, doesn't capture the creature and jump on its bubble. Uh, rightly um, so. I mean, right. That yeah, is it's very upsetting. frustrating. Uh. Um, and, um, and so you can see again, some application, right? Just that enjoyment and playing and engagement. They can of course play for hours on end. If I were to let them, they are on a time limit, of course. (laughs) Um, but I was also thinking a little bit about this too. Um, and thinking about classes almost outside the box. And again, about how I learned not doing you know, literature or film courses. I always was interested in other activities and how I can apply language in those outside environments. And I was thinking, wouldn't it be kind of fun to actually just have a class where you build an arcade together with everyone, right? Because you're mm-hmm. now 
And, and you could do it in that language. Now, it be, might be hard to do, if, depending on the, your class size and who you can get involved. But, I mean, with woodworking and electronics and coding and yep. audiovisual and all these different skills that you need that can be applied to so many different professions. And you can get them that extra language practice in that mm-hmm. space that might be related to one of their professions. Um, mm-hmm. I would find very valuable, especially once they learn that vocabulary set with that. Um, and they can apply that into, you know, if they're doing a job interview, maybe they want to work in Germany as a coder and they spend time working yep. on building games, right? They might have some of that language background to help them out in that interview um, instead of maybe never practicing that and getting caught having it on your CV. I, I, my German mm-hmm. level is uh, B2, but I've never spoken about my actual job before. Right. So it's difficult, right? Yep. Anyone who's never practiced, doesn't matter what your level is, if you've never used the vocab set, you know, for that very specific thing, it really throws you off. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think sometimes there could be kind of fun ways to integrate it that way, like actually working through the building process. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I've always dreamed of having a makerspace that's attached to our language center where students can do exactly that. Mm-hmm. Work with somebody on right. something, creating something, but but talking through all the steps or even having like little instruction sheets in different languages. And I mean, it can be as simple as folding origami, right, to as complex as, as creating an arcade from scratch. Um, right. That's, yeah. and when that's it, my dream. Yeah. And wouldn't it be fun, too, to, you know, bring in experts, you know, mm-hmm. and whatever it might be in that relationship. And they could be, you know, language, whoever speaks the language that you're trying to learn, right? It could be a person yeah. from that target language, but maybe not. You could work across campus and find others just to, you know, help build that course, but do part of it in that language, too. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it would be kind of fun. Makerspace, uh, years ago, I don't know if they still do it. Wasn't it Rhodes College did uh, yoga in German? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I think yep. at the language center, right? Yep. So. Um, there's all these nice, fun spaces or third spaces, not the classroom, not some sort of yeah. semi-formal learning space or maybe yeah. a semi-formal uh, learning space like a language center um, where you can still practice and engage in that thing mm-hmm. that you're learning. I think, uh, yeah, that would be great. Yeah, we did a project a while ago um, with an undergraduate student who was interested in cooking and seeing if the steps of following a recipe and, and cooking alongside a professional chef if that helps you retain that vocabulary better. And we worked um, in a university kitchen and um, a university chef was giving us instructions in Italian. Um, and that was a fun and quite delicious project Ooh. too. And students did retain vocabulary better um, based on having followed the steps of, you know, cutting and chopping and sauteing and whatevering um, than students yeah. who just learned it based on a vocabulary list. It really creates a strong anchor point. And mm-hmm. I have found that for a lot of gaming when I'm doing it and interacting mm-hmm. with others, because there's there's more at stake too, right? When you're, yeah. whether it's gaming or if you're trying to cook and make it taste, you know, hopefully well, yeah. um, but you get <laughs> things correct, right? When you're doing that or yeah. it, vocabulary sticks with me through either activity uh, or embarrassment. That's uh, <laughs> That's if, if I do something really embarrassing, um, I can usually laugh at myself, but I, I remember that it's mm-hmm. it stays right there. Um, and then I tend to remember stuff really well when I'm doing it in an activity that I care about or have some interest in. <laughs> yeah, I had a situation in Austria when I was first 
learning German and I went to the the meat counter, the Metzgerei there, and I was going to order. The only word I knew from the counter for I can remember from my textbook was um, um, Aufschnitt, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and in, in my anxiety and my panic, I asked for Ausschnitt, which doesn't really work so well uh, at the meat counter. Uh, so, and now that stays in my head. Yeah, absolutely. And we invite figure that one out. <laughs> yeah, we exactly. We invite all of our listeners to Google Translate both of those words right now. <laughs> I'll do it after. <laughs> yes. Uh, so then I'll get the joke <laughs> later. That's an yes, interesting thing will. with AI stuff. Um, is I, I don't know if I've said this before to you, but like I do feel like language faculty should kind of almost be at the forefront of a lot of this because they've been fighting Google Translate since 2006. True. And um, I, you know, and it's sort of back and forth, right? Because on the one hand, you have people that learned how to work with it, so I think they might be better equipped with tools to deal with new things that are coming out right now. But then you have those that avoided it for the last. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. like 17 years or whatever. Um, like I said, yeah. it hasn't been that long, however long it's been out. Um, and then they're still sitting here with no tools, really, other than to say, just ban it, just ban it. Yeah. Um, but I do think there's a space in there for language folk to really um, fill that vacuum and be leaders in that space. Mm-hmm. Don, what other projects are you currently working on? Well, currently... Um, so as you mentioned in the beginning, I have shifted positions from the Language Center. So I'm now uh, housed with academic technology. And um, so some of my responsibilities have shifted with that, of course, as well. Mm-hmm. And I have been focusing a lot more on things around broad use of technology and how that can help with universal design for learning, for example, uh, and accessibility. Um, I think also like a lot of people, I'm knee deep in artificial intelligence and every 8 million different directions that seems to be going. Um, and so right now it's just trying to keep up with a lot of that Mm -hmm. Um, and connecting that back to UDL and accessibility. Of course, I think AI is really ripe for helping out with assistive technology. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we're already kind of looking at some things that are coming down the pipeline. Um, Be My Eyes is one that comes to mind for those people who have a visual impairment. They just uh, signed with OpenAI hmm. um, to provide, you can u- essentially use your phone to look at an image and it'll give you a text description of that image, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so things along those lines. Yeah. Um, and there's a few other interesting products that are in the works right now um, that I think look pretty interesting. So I'm kind of diving into those areas and, and sort of seeing how we might be able to apply those at Carleton. Nice. That's great. Where can our listeners learn more about you and your work? Yeah, well, probably the easiest way would just be to find me at Carleton College, um, cool. which is carleton.edu, or you can Google Don Vosberg in Carleton College and find me. You, Of course, if you want to, you can feel free to email me at dvosberg at carleton.edu. I'm always more than happy to talk about whether it's gaming uh, for language learning or gaming in general, um, but also technology around DEI, UDL, artificial intelligence. Um, that's where I'm sitting right now. Great. And we'll make sure to put that link straight into our show notes. Don, this has been a lot of fun chatting with you. Before we sign off, we'd like to ask you to share a word in a language you speak, love, are learning, want to learn that doesn't exist in English, but you wish it did. 
Let's hear that word. Yeah. So um, I, when I first uh, uh, thought about this prompt, um, I actually got the instructions wrong. And I just thought about any word in general, like that I would like to have that doesn't exist in English, even if I knew it in a different language. Oh, we, and that's we would fine accept too. that as a response. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, yeah. we don't well, grade here. <laughs> my 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 more appropriate response is I really like Feierabend for this particular one. Um, you know, because it's sort of like we don't have direct translation for it, uh, right? But you know, you say it at the end of your workday, right? And then you're going to go home. And I also just really like it because it helps to create sort of a mental split. My workday is done. <laughs> right, I'm not bringing it home with me. It's Feierabend. See you later. Um, and so I like that. But my my original thought when I was going through this, and I was actually talking to my wife about this, was wouldn't it be great if there was a word for that movement you do when you are coming upon someone who just mopped the floor and they're still there, but you got to walk through and you do that weird <laughs> awkward hop dance yeah. where you kind of tippy toe <laughs> slash hop dance, trying not to fall, but then you're trying to create a small footprint yeah. and you never do. <laughs> Um, I think we need a word for that dance. Whatever that dance is, I would love it if we had a word for that. That is good. I I do that dance on a regular basis here Uh, in in our hallways. And I always feel so bad for our wonderful building care team and Anna. Shout out to Anna for always leaving the (laughs) floor clean. Yeah, you always feel bad, right? That's why you do it. How do I I get... Yeah. It's, it's, it's almost the same type of dance you do when you see a car's wanting to turn and you're in the middle of the crosswalk so you kind of hop and then walk a little bit faster like you're doing a half run. Um, and I, at the end, I'm always like, I'm the one outside. They're sitting in a comfortable car. I, right. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. <laughs> well, we will we will get on naming that appropriately. If any of our listeners have suggestions, please let us know. Don, thank you so much for speaking of language with us today. Thanks for having me again. Join us next week for our annual Thanksgiving special. We'll be exploring cross-cultural expressions of gratitude and appreciation through poetry. Until then, auf Wiederhören. The Language Resource Center is located on the ground floor of Stimson Hall on Cornell's main campus in Ithaca, New York. Check us out on the web at lrc.cornell.edu or follow Cornell LRC on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Speaking of Language is produced by Angelica Kramer and Sam Lupowitz. Recorded by Sam Lupowitz. Original music by Sam Lupowitz, Dan Gable, and Joe Gibson. Thanks also to the College of Arts and Sciences at Cornell University. As a reminder, the ideas and opinions expressed on this podcast do not reflect those of the College of Arts and Sciences or any other official entity of Cornell University. We thank our listeners, and do stay tuned for our next episode. You'll you'll forgive me for the stereotype, but I am sitting here chuckling to myself thinking about yoga in German. I'm just... <laughs> but why, Sam? That makes... I mean, all Germans are serene. Of course. Very calm. <laughs> Re- relaxed. <laughs> uh, you know, low-key. Yeah. Yes, yes. <laughs> That's my experience, certainly. Uh, certainly with you, Angelica. Um, (laughs) (laughs) all right. Where were we? Don, what other projects? Oh, man, I'm laughing too. (laughs) I just imagine you yelling like, I am in Downward Dog. (laughs) I had the, I had the, yeah, exactly. I had the best advice. I had to see some kind of stupid physical therapist today for a wrist problem that I have. 
And the most amazing advice I've ever gotten from a doctor was, do not do push-ups and do not do planks. <laughs> so there. So well, no right. downward dog, no downward dog for me. Right yeah. there. And Can't no do it. no planking. Like nope. it's uh, no more partying like it's 2013 around here. <laughs> <laughs> I congratulated him on giving me this, this advice. I'm like I will I will fully take this to heart and I will succeed 100% at this order. <laughs> See, that's where you need like a it should be like Krankenschreiben, right? Um yep. and oh, yeah. you're like, "Nope, here's my note. And here's my doctor's note. Uh, I, I can't do this ever." I know. Nope. Okay, Sam. Yes, where were <laughs> Wanna we? Want to try uh, that again? Yes, the I'd other love projects. To. 